0: Open up your Bibles to the middle, middle. Second Corinthians, not quite the middle, (laughs) kind of near the end actually if I'm honest. Uh, Open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 13. Uh, We are in 2 Corinthians 13 tonight. Um, I'm going to pray for for us as we kind of get ready here. Dear God in heaven, I thank you so much uh, for your great love which was set on us while we were sinful while we were unholy while we were incomplete you set your love on us and you sent Christ to show your grace towards us and you even send your Holy Spirit into our heart to empower and work the completion and the perfection of your redemption we pray tonight that you would show the marvelous nature of your grace, that you would encourage us and exhort us and cause us to be comforted through your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name, because it is in him that we come to you tonight. Amen. Sometimes you're not ready for those big moments that come your way. The test is before you, and you suddenly realize, well, that pencil is sharp, your mind is dull. I am not prepared. I am not ready. And you see this all all throughout the world. Sometimes there's big moments in life that people just aren't ready for. They're not prepared for. The football team comes through the tunnel, and it becomes painfully obvious to everybody watching they are not ready for this moment they are not prepared and this is sadly the case oftentimes and and i would say this if you if you understand what i'm saying some sometimes great moments in your life will come and you will not feel ready for them and i hope that's not true for you for for any moment from now but that's the case sometimes you're not ready because your mind is not in the right place you're not prepared you're not trained But I would say this as well, some of your greatest moments in life, some of your greatest achievements in life, will come when you prepare for them, right? Greatness doesn't happen overnight, greatness has to be worked for, and you have to be prepared for, and and oftentimes there's a coach, usually in your life of some kind, that's helping you prepare, that's helping you focus, that's helping you train, who is getting you where you need to be, who is exhorting you, who is encouraging you, who is teaching you, and preparing you. To succeed. Sometimes I like to think of the pastoral ministry kind of like coaching, right? I'm training you in some ways to go out there and I'm preparing you for this big moment of your life so that you can succeed. I want to help you focus, I want to teach you, I want to instruct you, I want to keep your minds on the right thing so that you can pursue the right things and not waste great opportunities in your life. Just so you know, you happen to have a great opportunity coming your way in two, one and a half weeks. It's winter retreat. You get to spend a whole weekend with the people of God, hearing the word of God, and talking about it. You get to spend a whole weekend. That's a great opportunity for spiritual things to happen in your your life. And I want you to be prepared for it. Are you prepared for it? This is, so to speak, kind of a motivational speech, you know, as you're running down the tunnel getting ready for winter retreat. You could say it like that, if you have that football mind. If you don't, forget about it. I want you to be prepared. As a matter of fact, you could say this message is kind of my eager desires for you. My my earnest and final and eager desires for you. This is Paul's eager desires for Christians. And this is my eager desire for you as well, to prepare you for big moments in your life, and for every moment in your life. Let's read it. It is 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11. Paul writes this, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All of the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will be with you all. This is kind of the last thing that Paul has to say to the Corinthians. This is summing it all up. If you wanted to know what Paul wanted the Corinthians to really take away from this letter, if you wanted to really hear his earnest desire for them, his final eager desire for them, you would look here at 2 Corinthians 13 and see it. This this is really what he wants. And this is what I want for you as your pastor. And not just as you prepare for winter retreat. Every day of your life, this is my prayer for you. This is my eager desire for you. This is also the culmination of his entire correspondence, all the letters he wrote to the Corinthian church. And that's significant. It's significant for a few reasons. Number one, we have more... Words written to the Corinthian church than any other church in the New Testament right they got two huge letters written to the Corinthians it's almost as if the Holy Spirit wants us to take a good long look at the church in Corinth and examine them and be taught by them and be instructed through his servant Paul in them the Holy Spirit wants us to focus on the Corinthians. Which, if you ask me, is not the church I would have picked to focus on. I think the worst church in the New Testament was the Corinthians. Just just take a gander at 1 Corinthians. You, know, you don't have to read very far. You get about chapter 5, and you're like, these people were messed up. <laughs> maybe the Holy Spirit wants us to focus on them because this is the church that's maybe most like us. What we most need. So it's significant that we hear what Paul really wants this church to do. Now, a little history on this church. This is uh, I'll try not to make this a Phil Johnson introduction. <laughs> uh, a little history it's, it's fascinating when you look at the correspondence between Paul and this church this church was probably founded through Paul in 80, 50 or 51, you can read about that in Acts 18, Paul stayed there initially on his second missionary journey for about a year and a half and then on his third missionary journey he came back up through Turkey and stayed in Ephesus for a while and then kind of was a pastor through letters to the church in Corinth and then in late AD 55, that's five years after it was founded, Paul hears about trouble in Corinth. They are tolerating some sort of sexual immorality. We get this from 1 Corinthians 5.9. And this leads to Paul, leads Paul to sending his first letter, which happens to not be 1 Corinthians. It'll get more confusing, trust me. He sends a letter which is known as, to us, the lost letter. This is a letter where he addresses this issue. And then, in AD 56 sometime, he hears more disturbing reports, and he also receives questions from the church in Corinth, and so he writes his second letter to the church in Corinth, and this happens to be 1 Corinthians. Okay, so you got the second letter, it's 1 Corinthians. It gets worse, it gets worse. And and there's something to be learned here in the second letter to the Corinthians. You see, when sin is tolerated, like they were tolerating sin, which he was addressing in his first letter, you notice that they get confused. Sin leads to confusion in your life. So he has to write this letter to correct and answer questions, because sin has confused them. He sent this letter through Timothy, by the way. And then later on in that same year not too long after, Timothy arrives in Corinth and finds that the situation is actually worse than either one of them thought. False teachers have infiltrated the church. They're feeding off of the congregation's pride, um, the divisions that are in the, the church, their toleration of immorality and their theological confusion. These false teachers have just swooped in and are having a heyday in the church in Corinth. And this is another lesson for us, where confusion abounds, teachers and false teachers swarm, right? you have sin in your life, that will lead to confusion. If you have confusion in your life, that will lead to false teachers swarming all around your life. Well, Paul learns about this quick, and he actually does an emergency trip from Corinth. You see him talk about this in 2 Corinthians 2.1. It does not go well. They resist his authority, and maybe a few of their members actually publicly ridicule him. They they demand from him letters of recommendation because these false teachers have letters of recommendation perhaps from Jerusalem. Paul, why don't you have any letters of recommendation? Why should we listen to you? Well, after this, Paul graciously leaves. He gives them space to repent. Um, By the way, gracious doesn't mean silence. Um, Grace speaks in love and in care, but it still speaks with truth and clarity. After Paul leaves the church in Corinth, after this unpleasant visit, he writes another letter, a very strong letter of rebuke. This is about the same year as all this is happening. This is the longest year of Paul's life, perhaps you could say, eighty fifty-six. This is the third letter to the Corinthians. It's known as the severe letter, or the tearful letter. It was sent through or by Titus, and it is also not second Corinthians. It gets more confusing. Alright. Then after this, you could say, meanwhile, back in Ephesus, Paul gets back to Ephesus, and there is a riot waiting for him in Ephesus. That's Acts nineteen. Notice Paul's got a lot of things going on right now. He departs from Ephesus. He goes to Troas. He's looking for Titus to hear how the Ephesians or the Corinthians have received his severe letter. He doesn't find Titus there, so he goes over to Macedonia, and Macedonia is where the church in Philippi is, and the Thessalonians are. He goes there, he's looking for him, he finally finds Titus, and Titus tells him that the Corinthians are sad, they are grieved by how they have sinned against him, and they are sorry, they're begging his forgiveness, they would like him to come. And Paul rejoices, and as Paul gets ready to go and visit them, he writes his fourth letter that we know of to the Corinthians, and this is 2 Corinthians that we have before him, before us. This is 2 Corinthians. Paul is essentially going to defend his apostleship, he's going to exhort them to continue um, taking a collection for the Jerusalem church, and he's also going to denounce the false teachers. You see... Some of the people in Corinth had repented, but not all of them. And there were still false teachers in there. So Paul wanted to assert his authority, but also commend their repentance and also show his great love for them. Then, of course, he stays with them for three weeks. And we get the sense from Romans fifteen twenty six that the visit went well because they are ready to give. But what does Paul say? What does Paul say? I'm going to break this message down into three parts. Three parts because it's shorter than eight. Um, th- to, to be honest, uh, this is I'm kind of borrowing the outline from John MacArthur because I was like, three is shorter than seven, so we'll do that. So there we go. Uh, so this is three three dear desires of a pastor for his people, right? Three desires. The first point is going to be a little bit longer. This is where those six points turned into one. <laughs> it's actually not that impressive. It's going to be the same amount of sermon. Um, but, but we'll get through it. All right, ready? So first off, seek completion. That's what Paul tells them. Seek completion. In, in, in place of completion, you could think of healthiness, wholeness, perfection, uh, an ordered life. Seek completion, he tells them. And we see this in verse 11, right? Finally, brothers, rejoice. What does completion look like? First off, it looks like rejoicing. It is a life that rejoices. Matter of fact, I've got a few subpoints for you. First off, be confident. Be confident. This is what rejoicing is. It's not just confidence, though. It's as our pastor Steve would say, it is confidence in providence. You're confident in the working of God and the control of God in your life at all times. You can rejoice. You are confident. Christians who are complete rejoice. They rejoice always, 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us. There is no situation that you don't have to rejoice in. They rejoice above everything. Luke 10.20 says, Even in good situations, a Christian still rejoices in the riches and the treasures that they have in God and in heaven. They rejoice also affectionately. Matthew 5.12 is very interesting. He says, when you are persecuted, rejoice and be glad. Right? Yeah, we, we are right to make a distinction between happiness and joy. But we shouldn't forget that joy often often affects our emotions and causes gladness as well. That We should rejoice always above everything and affectionately. Why? Well, it's because you worship a God, and you serve a God who is above everything. And His hand is on you, and His purposes are on you, so you can rejoice. This is what Paul wants for them. He wants them to increase and be strengthened in joy. Matter of fact, every pastor does this. Every pastor is eagerly working for your joy. It says in 2 Corinthians 1, 24, and we didn't lord it over your faith but we worked with you for your joy for for you for you stand firm in the faith notice that we work with you for your joy pastoral ministry even if it's corrective even if it's hard even if it's difficult is working for your joy that's what a pastor wants from you how do, we, how do we understand this? Well, it is, it's being confident in God's providence. But let's, let's kind of explain this a little bit negatively. Uh, what, is it, what does it mean to be an incomplete Christian? Uh, what, what does it mean to not be confident? Well, an uh, incomplete Christian is someone who is gloomy and limited by their circumstances. Right? They always see the world through their circumstances. And they are gloomy because of it. Their life is depressing, discouraging. They are defeated by everything and constantly embarrassed. They are anxious in everything. Why? Because their perspective is limited on their own situation. So, be confident. Another thing he says in this verse is, Be ready for good. Be ready for good. If you're looking for a C word to help this alliteration flow, you could say be capable, or as we see here in verse 11, aim for restoration. This is actually the main point where I get the idea of be or seek completion. This word there, restoration, you see that in verse 11, um, has this idea of um, putting things in order, um, restoring something to order, taking something that's in disarray and out of order, and putting it into order. And there's there's a sense here that you make something as it ought to be you put things back the way they were supposed to be there is a picture in the gospels of the disciples doing something with this verb and it is mending their nets you're you're organizing them and and what does that tell us right. aim for restoration is really preparing yourself you're getting ready for good works you're preparing you're ordering your life and you're trying to bring your life into order so that you're ready to do good things you're prepared you're, The sin puts you in a state of decay, and it puts you out of order, and it makes you ineffective and incomplete. It confuses, it halts good works. You put yourself in a state of readiness by, of course, pursuing God's word and God's truth. Because what does God's word do? It, it cleanses you, Ephesians 5 tells us. It grows you, First Peter 2 tells us. It strengthens you, it matures you, it makes you effective for every good work. That's what Second Timothy 3 tells us. The word of God does all of this. It puts your life in order. When you put your life under the word of God, you are putting your life in order, and you are getting ready to be effective for good works. Good works. But, but what does it mean to be an incomplete Christian? Well, it means to be spiritually lazy. It means to be out of sorts, right? It, it means you are never ready for a good work. It means you are like a blade that is dull and ineffective in the purposes of God. As a matter of fact, your life is so disorderly that you can't even hear God's Word. Because when a life is disorderly, everything in your life feels so important in the moment, and true important things like God and God's Word become unimportant. Because everything is important in a disordered life. That's be ready for good. Let's look at another uh, another sub-point here. B, this is still under... um, be complete. Be, uh, be exhortable. Be exhortable. You see there. Comfort one another. This word comfortable you could put there. Be comfortable if you want C's. Uh, you're ready to hear. You're slow to speak. That's the kind of idea here. Be exhortable or be comforted. Um, You see there that he actually has it. He kind of is addressing it to them in the ESV as if this is something he wants them to kind of produce in themselves, comfort one another. But I would actually see this as more of a a passive sense, be comforted. Paul never uses that kind of sense of a middle verse. So you see there in a footnote right down there, number two in my Bible, um, listen to my appeal. That's what Paul is saying here. He is saying, listen to my appeal, be exhorted, be comforted. You could say it like that. It's kind of interesting that the, the word here "comforted" means exhorted. Like this is the word that you see all the time in the New Testament when you're when you're hearing the idea of being exhorted, being encouraged, being challenged, being strengthened. It also means comforted. It means all of all of these things at the same time. You could say it like this: comforted is kind of like the result of being exhorted, encouraged. Right? When you are exhorted and you heed that exhortation. You produce comfort in your life. You do. Your spiritual comfort, in fact, hinges on how you hear and listen to the Word of God in your life. Right? We see this in Proverbs 7, 8. Right? The fear of the Lord produces a love of correction. Right? A wise man, if you correct him, he'll love you. Right? The wise man sees, wow. I just got saved from a terrible, foolish mistake. I love the person that corrected me. He's exhortable, and therefore his life is comfort-filled, right? And then we see also in Psalm one hundred nineteen, eighty-nine, 89, the heart that heeds God's correction actually finds protection, right? Psalm one hundred nineteen, ninety-eight. 98, sorry, says this, your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, Right? They they are a protection for me. When you are exhortable, when you are when you're willing to be when you're willing to be taught, when you're willing to heed instruction in your life, you become wiser than your enemies, and you have a spiritual comfort that comes through that as a result. What is the opposite of this? Well, an incomplete Christian is someone who is resistant and distrusting and ultimately proud, right? I don't need any correction in my life. I don't need any exhortation. I like the way I am. I'm comfortable the way I am. But if you think about it, this life will always result in discomfort. right? What does a disorderly life look like? Uh, it looks like a life that is ultimately in discomfort. And that is a Christian that refuses to listen to exhortation. So there you go. Be exhortable. Another command he gives you here, be filled with God's word. Or as you see in your Bible, something that doesn't even sound like that at all. It says, agree with one another. Agree with one another. But the idea that he's going here is be filled, submit to, obey God's word. That is what this pastor dearly wants for his people. The word there actually is literally think, think the same. Have the same mind. Think like one another. This is again a result of what the command is commanding here. When you when your thoughts are governed and controlled by the word of God and other people in your life have their thoughts governed and controlled by the word of God, you think the same way. You think the same way, you enjoy a unity in fact. You enjoy a great unity by the way, it's, it's great to want unity going into a, a retreat, but if that is not based on a determination to think the thoughts of God about you, and to only accept the Word of God's truth about you, that unity is going to be superficial, and it will collapse. That's where true unity comes from. It comes from thinking the same, and, and thinking under the Word of God. What, what is the opposite of that? Well, an incomplete Christian is irritable, they squabble, they're divisive, they're distant, they're subjective. Hey, it's just, it's, it's always what I think. It, the truth is only in, in my mind, right? And they are ultimately very um, unpeaceful. As a matter of fact, that leaves us to our next point that Paul has for these people uh, in being complete. He says, Be calm, live in peace. This is, once again, the result of having a unity of mind, of having lives and hearts that are, that are humble under the Word of God. The Christian aims, of course, to live at peace with all people, but but a Christian especially wants to live at peace with other believers because we're all striving to think the same way about the world that we live in. What is the opposite of someone who lives, in, lives at peace with all people? Well, an incomplete Christian would be a word we would call pugnacious. Pugnacious. This is someone who is quarrelsome or combative by nature, a pugnacious individual. This is someone who loves a fight. And if there isn't a fight, he'll create a fight because he loves a fight so much, right? That is not the way you're called to be. You're called to live in peace, but this comes ultimately from having minds that are humble under the word of God. Now, of course, notice, notice the promise that comes with this idea of being complete, uh, this, being, this idea of being restored. What is the promise there? And the God of love and peace will be with you. The God of love and peace will be with you. God will be evidently, powerfully, and experientially more present with you because love and peace are with you. God's presence... Notice he is a God that is characterized by love and by peace. His presence among you will show itself constantly because your community will be one that is marked by love and peace. God will be with you. It's a wonderful promise. Now let's look at the the next point that this pastor has for these people. Now I said, once again, I said the first one was going to be long. And the, second one, and the third one is going to be short, so watch me now. You'll see very quickly why the second point is going to be very short. It gets into some very deep, treacherous, scandalous waters here. Verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. <laughs> this is what your pastor really wants for you. <laughs> Verse 13, all the saints greet you. Here's a, here's a point, number two, something that your pastor really wants for you. Seek demonstration. Don't just seek completion, also seek demonstration. Uh, Of what? Of your completion, of course. Seek to demonstrate and show off the love that is being produced in you and the affection for your fellow believers that comes to you from the word of God and the peace and the comfort that you gain from that. Seek to demonstrate that. Seek affection for fellow believers. Enjoy one another. Seek to be with one another. Now, what exactly is a holy kiss? This is where it gets uncomfortable. Well, this is cultural. This is how people used to greet each other. And by the way, I should point this out. It was definitely on the cheek. So don't have to, don't have to worry about that. Uh, but this is, this is a way that you identified who was close to you. Who was a family member. This was you saying, You are dear to me, right? Now you guys are all smirking. But you know when someone is dear to you, you want to show it. You can't help but show it, right? I can't help but hug my little girls and my son, right? Because they are dear to me. They are part of my family. Now, of course, this is cultural. Maybe you want to be careful with that, but maybe a, a well-timed kiss to someone very discreetly and, and and properly. Maybe, maybe. Notice it does say, maybe, maybe. Watch this. It does say a holy kiss. There is no hint of impropriety here. Uh, this is an expression that is appropriate. I'm saving mine for some really good friend. Uh, But, some really good friend. But basically, what I want to say to you, what I want to say to you is, is there ways that you should show affection for one another? Probably not with a kiss. That might be misunderstood, grievously, horribly, (laughs) but there is a way that you show that you appreciate someone and that they are dear to you. You show that in the time you spend with them, in the way you listen to them, in the way you talk to them. Just in, in the fact that you want to be here with other believers shows that you desire other believers. I actually have a favorite day on winter retreat. It happens to be the last day of winter retreat. Multiple reasons. Um, but there's this sharing time. And I love listening to you all share because it shows, it shows something. It shows that you have been in the Word of God all weekend long. And you've been with one another thinking about and praising God all weekend long. And there is a natural affection for one another. No, you're not greeting one another with a holy kiss, but you are appreciating one another. You go home and you want to be together again, right? You can't wait till Thursday, even though you're you're dropping with exhaustion, but you drag yourself in here because you want to be with fellow believers. The believers you hear God's word together are the believers you want to be together. This is my favorite part because it demonstrates the word of God in you. And I want you to think about, hey, how can I show appreciation? How can I demonstrate the fact that These people in this fellowship are dear to me in an appropriate, holy way. Um, A a final piece here, we are to seek completion, we are to seek demonstration. Uh, Finally, we are to seek worship. This is our, obviously, this is our doxology, this is our benediction here. Um, This benediction helps us with, with why, with the why question. You could say it like this. This, 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 this benediction helps show us why it is so wonderful, so great to have the God of love and the God of peace with you. Notice what he says, verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will be with you. This is a statement of God's presence and notice it's a statement of God's presence in Trinitarian form. This is one of the most amazing statements of the Trinity that we have in our Bible. Notice the Trinity is declared as equal with one another. We've got the Son, we've got the Father, we've got the Holy Spirit all giving gifts. They're not distinguished. They're they're not seen as one over the other. They're all equal and they're all giving gifts that contribute to our redemption. And this should cause us to worship. And this should be the mark of every believer that worships the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Notice notice what they give in verse 14. God the Father gives love. God, the God of love. The the love of God, you could say. The grace of Christ Jesus, and then the love that comes from God. God is the source. God is the fountain. God is the beginning of your redemption. That's what it's telling you, Right? It's saying, you seek completion, not because you're trying to get God to love you, but because God has already chosen you while you were incomplete and a sinner. And that is why you pursue completion with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. It says in 1 John 4.10, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And notice also, the Son gives grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son gives grace in the work of redemption. He is the the executor of redemption, the advancer, the demonstrator, the shower of redemption. We, we, We tried to sing that song, right? We tried to sing that song, and then it got screwed up. It's almost like Luke knew that I was going to quote this very verse, right? How does does Jesus show the love of God? He emptied himself to show his love and bled for Adam's helpless race. What do we do? We boldly approach the throne because of that. This is mercy. This is grace. This is God giving you what you don't deserve. By the way, this is how it's defined. This is grace. uh, 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. In the grace of Christ, you get what you don't deserve. And in the grace of Christ, he gets what he doesn't deserve. He becomes poor, so that you, who don't deserve it, can become rich in God. God gives, or Jesus gives you the grace of God. He shows the grace of God. And then finally, we see the Holy Spirit gives fellowship. The Holy Spirit empowers our, 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 our relationship with God. He empowers our nearness with God. He perfects our sanctification. He completes you from the inside of you. You are full. Your, your full redemption, your completion is from the Father, through the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. The whole Trinity is working to complete you. And that is why you should worship God and thank him and praise him and earnestly seek after these things. This is, this is the pastor's desire for the church. A very troubling church, but still, this is the pastor's desire for you, and this is my prayer for you as well as we go to winter retreat. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you for this evening, and I pray that you would help us through your word and help us through small group time to understand these things and to do them and to put them into practice. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.